this episode of China Unscripted. All the crimes of the Chinese Communist Party are coming together in the China Nexus. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And Matt Ganesda will not be joining us today. Uh, what with the whole Twitter files thing and all the talk of the Hunter Biden laptop story, he's been re-traumatized remembering when we forced him to watch all of the Hunter Biden. That's not why he's not here. But I, okay, it's a better story. It's a better story. Anyways, joining us today once again is Benedict Rogers. He's a human rights activist and the co-founder and CEO of Hong Kong Watch. And he's got a new book out called The China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. Ben, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you very much. Great, great to be with you, as always. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been talking about China for, for so many years now. Why did you feel uh, this was the time to write this book? What did you want to accomplish? Well, I... I when I thought about uh, writing the book, I realized that actually, although there are thousands of books on China out there, there are actually almost none that put together the sort of litany of, of human rights uh, horrors committed by the, the, the Chinese Communist Party in one volume. Uh, you know, there are some ex excellent books on Hong Kong, some excellent books on the Uyghurs, uh, on other aspects of China. But there are um, not, none that I could think of that put the Uyghurs, Tibet, uh, Hong Kong, the persecution of Christians, the persecution of Falun Gong, uh, forced organ harvesting, the crackdown on lawyers and civil, you know, the list is really long. Um, and on top of that, Taiwan and the Chinese regime's uh, complicity with atrocities in the two neighboring dictatorships of, of Burma or Myanmar and North Korea. Um, and as I thought about it, I, I thought there's a, a, a need and, and, and this is a time to write the book. I, I don't think when I started writing the book that I, I could have predicted just how timely it, it, it would be. And over the last few weeks, obviously, as the book has been launched in different places, the, the CCP has helpfully given uh, regular uh, new news hooks uh, uh, coinciding with the book. Um, but those are the reasons I wrote it. Does that mean you're one of these hostile foreign forces that had sparked these protests? It was all just uh, to promote your book. To promote your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but but I but certainly they. Uh, it was very uh, convenient that the CCP uh, decided to, uh, uh, you know, c continue its COVID, its really draconian COVID restrictions that uh, that led to those protests. So it was good timing. I was wondering why the, there was uh, that one protester who kept shouting, step down CCP, step down Xi Jinping, buy China Nexus on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> it all makes sense now. Uh, well, so why call it the China Nexus? Well, of course, more accurately, I should have probably called it the Chinese Communist Party Nexus, but that would be rather a long title. Um, I do make very clear in the book that uh, I make a distinction between China and the CCP. Um, and, you know, I love China as a country, as a, a people. It's the CCP that I uh, oppose and, and, and critique. Um, but the choice of the word nexus uh, is basically because the CCP is the uh, common factor in all the uh, issues that I explore in the book, um, both within China, but also uh, the threats externally to, to Taiwan, to our own freedoms, uh, and the complicity with atrocities in, in Burma and North Korea. So, um, yeah, the, the word nexus is, is the important uh, word in terms of uh, highlighting the fact that the regime in China is, is uh, a connecting point for all these issues. Well, it is, it is interesting. Like, I realize we, like, we always kind of compartmentalize how we talk about the Chinese Communist Party, like not just us, but like broadly speaking. It's like you have the you know, the people who focus on, like, the national security issues, and you'll have people focusing on, like, Taiwan or the South China Sea. Human rights is its own separate compartment. Uh, but it is kind of interesting to sort of bring all this together. This is going to make it hard to find, like, the punchy YouTube title that's, that <laughs> sums everything up. Well, I mean, I'm kind of amazed that you managed to fit all this in a book. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, yes, it, I mean, it certainly was a lot of work. I, I did... Um, uh, over 80 interviews with um, with Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, Tibetans, Chinese dissidents, Falun Gong practitioners, uh, uh, and uh, policy experts, Ch China watchers. Um, 
and did a lot of uh, background reading as well, and, and then drew quite a lot on my own experiences over the years. Well, I know you start your book off with some of your your uh, personal experiences, like you were, were you the first person who was banned from entering Hong Kong, or one of the first? I, I believe so. I, I'm pretty sure that I was the first um, Westerner and the first the first foreigner to be so um, overtly and 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 publicly uh, turned away. Um, there may have been uh, others, perhaps. Uh, um, I'm not sure whether there were others from the region in the in the past, Tibetans or Taiwanese or, or others. Um, but I believe I'm certainly the, the first Westerner. How do you feel about that whole situation looking back now, five years later? Because I had kind of forgotten exactly how that all went down. Uh, and reading your book, it seems that you had some forewarning that you might get banned, but it seemed like nobody was actually taking it seriously that the CCP would actually go that far. That's right. Um, so I had had a, a, a telephone call a few days before I was uh, planning to, to fly into Hong Kong um, from a, a British member of parliament who um, is a friend of mine, is, is someone who's certainly supportive of what I do, um, but had some channels of communication with the Chinese embassy. Uh, and he had received a call from the Chinese embassy saying they'd found out I was planning to go. He wanted uh, They wanted him to tell me not to go and, and that I might be denied entry if I did go. And he certainly wasn't telling me not to go, but he was giving me um, this this uh, forewarning. And I took advice from, I won't name them, but from some very prominent uh, pro-democracy people in, in Hong Kong and also some key political uh, figures in the UK. And, and all of them said, uh, you know, based on their own experience and, and their own expectations of Hong Kong, that uh, they thought this was the Chinese embassy trying to uh, sort of bluff and and intimidate me into not going, but actually, um, you know, if I arrived in Hong Kong, it would still be uh, Hong Kong immigration's decision, and that most likely they would let me in, and and it would be fine. Uh, but they also did say, if in the unlikely event uh, Beijing directly in, intervened in Hong Kong's immigration, um, you know, the world should know because this. Obviously, everything that's happened in Hong Kong since then uh, puts that episode, you know, it pales into insignificance by comparison. But at the time, people said this would be a really uh, worrying sign uh, of threats to Hong Kong's autonomy. But the only only way to to find out is is to go and see what happens. And sure enough, it turned out Beijing were more serious than any of us realized. This was 2017, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I remember when we went to Hong Kong in 2019 for the protests, you know, as we were going through immigration, like I was definitely thinking about what happened to you. And, you know, fortunately, we made it through. But I remember being just somewhat disappointed. Really? What what has been done that we haven't? (laughs) Like, why do they not care what we're doing? Are we insignificant? I didn't want to get denied and then have to take a 16-hour flight right back to the U.S. Oh that yeah, would have been I, I know. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was, I was happy about that, and it was good to be there for the protest, especially the two million-person protest. But there was like a little bit like, huh? Why? I enjoy why flying not? under the radar. <laughs> Chris apparently just wants to get arrested by Hong Kong immigration. I just like hearing my name. <laughs> Actually, around the time we went, Zhou Feng Suo got denied. That's right. It was like a week after we made it in, and I was texting with him because he had just gotten denied entering Hong Kong. He managed to get them to send him on a plane to Taiwan instead of having to turn around and go right back to the U.S. But a number of people started to get denied in 2019. But I guess, Ben, you're so uh, special that you were just like the the special person who got denied like two years before that. <laughs> well, as you say, quite a lot of people have have followed, um, uh, including people like Ken Roth, the the um, at the time the the head of Human Rights Watch, um, and of course there was the case of of the Financial Times journalist Victor Mallet, exactly a year after, almost to the day uh, after my being denied entry. You know, he he was his. Uh, uh, journalist visa in Hong Kong was revoked and he was kicked out. So there have been a few since me, but I guess I was the the, the guinea pig uh, that they started with. <laughs> well, definitely now after the national security law, I think we are all effectively kicked mm. out of Hong Kong. Yes. I, I imagine you won't be trying that again. I, I certainly won't be. Um, not not just because I was denied entry five years ago, but, but also because, um, you know, earlier this year, I 
uh, was directly threatened by the Hong Kong police and the National Security Bureau under the national security law with a with a potential prison sentence. So I, I wouldn't even transit in, in Hong Kong. Yeah, I, I think word is right now, as of when we're recording it, there's some talk that you know, Apple Daily found Jimmy Lai might be tried in China. Oh, a Chinese oh. official suggested it. And yeah. It's not clear how much of a threat that is, I guess. Yeah. So definitely, mm-hmm. I think there is a possibility that if like people like us tried to go to Hong Kong, we could find ourselves in a Chinese court. We'd probably be fine, Chris. <sighs> <laughs> Why? Why don't they care about us? Okay, just because you haven't gotten threatening letters sent to your neighbors telling them to watch you like Benedict has, doesn't mean you're not special. I think, no, I think that does. <laughs> I think that does mean exactly that. Uh, now, now, in, now, in your book, it's it's interesting how, like, you, you travel a lot, and you've been to, like, East Timor and the Maldives, Maldives, Maldives. Ben? Uh, Maldives, I would say, yeah. Thank you. Uh but wherever you go, you, you, you said that China is still is still an issue in those countries. Like, what's tell us about that? Well, I think we've seen in over the last uh, decade or two, um, you know, China really uh, exert its its economic influence, uh, its economic coercion, um, and and what it has done in particular is is to essentially. Uh, to put it simply, to, to buy votes at the UN, because uh, through economic investment in places like East Timor and the Maldives and, and plenty of other places in Asia, Africa, Latin America, we've just seen Xi Jinping in Saudi Arabia um, uh, these last few days, uh, it, it has um, won over to its side uh, countries that might otherwise have sp- spoken out. You would expect Muslim-majority countries, for example, to be concerned about the the genocide of the Uyghurs, but um, yeah. almost all of them are either silent or, or worse. I mean, they actually uh, back uh, Beijing when it comes to votes at the UN. So um, it's achieved that through through its extensive uh, economic investments, the Belt and Road Initiative, and, and so on. Since you mentioned the UN, uh, you had interviewed a former U.S. representative to the UN who talked about China's infiltration to the in the UN, and I had no idea it was quite as bad as she described. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so I, I was uh, really shocked uh, because I knew about um, the extent of China's influence in terms of uh, positions it, it holds within different UN bodies and the ability to uh, uh, to, to defeat uh, resolutions. Um, but what I also didn't know was that it basically has penetrated uh, right into the the office of the Secretary General. Um, I had always wondered why Antonio Guterres had been um, so uh, quiet, silent uh, on the Uyghur genocide, on Hong Kong, um, and pretty quiet also on on the issues in in Burma and North Korea. Um, and I wasn't sure if it was just you know he he was in a sort of permanent siesta or um, uh, or what was going on. But I learned from um, the former U.S. ambassador to. Uh, the um, uh, Economic, Social and Cultural uh, Affairs uh, Council, um, Kelly Curry, uh, who told me that uh, essentially there is a Chinese slush fund uh, that contributes uh, uh, millions of dollars uh, through the Secretary General's office. And the only, there's no accountability for this uh, fund. It's it's for the Secretary General to use for development projects. um, And the only people who have oversight of the fund are the secretary general and some Chinese appointees. That's insane. How is that okay? Well, it's it's not okay, and it shouldn't be okay. And uh, uh, I mean, Kelly Curry is very open to talking about this. She talked to me on the record. Um, I double checked uh, uh, what she had said with her with me, uh, you know, before publication. Um, uh, and she's offered to talk to to, to other journalists. She, she actually says that I'm the first person to report what she's claiming, and she hasn't been able to get other journalists to report on it yet. But um, yeah, it's it's clearly not okay. Do do we know any journalists who would want to talk to her? Wait, us? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, please, please pass, well, you pass should def- the, definitely the contact have her on. over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I look forward to becoming even more shocked about the state of the UN. Yeah, it's it's amazing just how how horribly corrupt the UN is. 
Well, well, I mean, I think there had been a bunch of scandals involving China for a, a number of years ago, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember the particulars now, but um, they had definitely gotten in trouble with bribing some officials and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of on the top of my mind because we talked about it on an episode recently, but um, just sort of how, like, back in 1999, there was this agreement between the U.S. and China to, you know, if China gives... Uh, access to the Chinese market to U.S. companies, the U.S. would help push China's entry into the WTO. And that kind of sparked like this whole new era of globalization. Globalization was happening, but a new era of, in globalization where it seemed like people were like, hey, we can find a way to work with dictators and authoritarian regimes, and this will help make those countries, particularly China, it'll help them reform. And now it just seems like looking back on that, the complete opposite happened. It just spread corruption to every corner of the world. Uh, absolutely, that's exactly right. I think um, looking back, um, you know, the the, the West uh, was was incredibly naive. Um, although having said that, you know, at the time I could understand why they thought this this might actually help uh, open China up, because as I describe in the, in the book, in the uh, last decade of the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, um, I, I could see some limited uh, uh, relaxation. The, you know, there was some, uh, of course, within restrictions, obviously, the CCP has always been repressive, but um, and corrupt. Uh, but you could see in those years, some limited space for civil society, uh, some limited uh, uh, space for some religious practice, although, of course, um, the persecution of, of Falun Gong also began during uh, those years. Um, but, uh, you know, there were ch I met Chinese uh, human rights lawyers during those those years who who had some space to actually try to defend human rights cases. Um, and but in in the last decade or, or a bit more, um, uh, all of that has disappeared and the CCP has really intensified its repression and, and launched a, a total crackdown on, on on all of those small openings that we did see during those years. So it does seem now that um, actually China's economic growth and its access to uh, the WTO um, has done the opposite of what we all hoped it would achieve. And it's actually led to um, a corruption of, of the multinational institutions and a, and a real threat to our own freedoms rather than a liberalization of China. Yeah, I think a lot of things, and I feel like 2008 stands out in my mind when it comes to things like human rights lawyers and things like that, because it seemed that until China kind of cinched the uh, the host of hosting of the Olympics and managed to pull that off, they were a little bit more. Um, I mean, I think that like people were able to try to push the envelope a little bit in terms of some of the civil society issues, but you know there were obviously still red lines. Like maybe you could defend um, somebody against a local government who had, you know, you torn somebody's house down, and maybe you could win a case against that. But as soon as you did something like Gao Zhishen had gone from being a lawyer that was like praised by the CCP for taking on some of these like medical malpractice cases and like going against some like corrupt local governments. And then when he started to talk about Falun Gong, like that was, he, he became a Christian and started talking about Falun Gong, like that was like the absolute line. And then he was disappeared. Mm -hmm. Tortured, but, disappeared. But it seemed like around 2008, like, and after that, a lot more human rights lawyers started to be disappeared. And that space started to shrink because they had already gotten what they wanted, which was, you know, the fanfare and triumph of the Olympics. Yeah. Well, I think really, like, you see how China used the money coming in from the West as well as the technology. Uh, once they had that, they were able to build the system they wanted. Uh, you know, the, the systems they put in place to persecute Falun Gong had, you know, then just been expanded to Uyghurs. They built the Great Firewall, thanks to, thanks to the West, again. Like, I don't think zero COVID could have happened if China didn't get the money and the technology from the West that it was getting in that period of time. I, I think that's exactly right. And I totally agree about 2008 being the turning point. And I, again, describe this in, in the book, um, where partly uh, because of um, it, China, uh, the CCP, uh, 
getting what it wanted. Um, but also, I think um, it, at the same time, it saw you know within China the the Charter 08 uh, movement, uh, Liu Xiaobo, uh, who was of course uh, arrested uh, that same year, two thousand and eight. Um, uh, and they saw in subsequent years, you know, the various what we call the the color revolutions uh, around the world. Uh, and I think it probably felt that they had uh, allowed that space to, uh, to, to to go too far, and and they felt threatened by it, um, and didn't want uh, uh, an equivalent of a of a color revolution. And so I think that combination of it having achieved what it wanted to achieve with the Olympics and being fearful of um, of of space allowing uh, dissent that could challenge the party um, caused it to to crack down. So I guess to zoom out again, like you talk about all of these different issues. Um, what do you think, like, what do you think the advantages to like looking at uh, China sort of from this macroscopic viewpoint instead of like focusing on like these individual things? Does that help? Uh, do you think that helps create like a better way to like approach and strategize against the Chinese Communist Party? Do you see some kind of um, through line in like how... China's actions in the South China Sea ties to Uyghur persecution, ties to internet censorship. Yes, I mean, I think it's it's helpful to see the common thread uh, between all these um, different um, issues of of repression, persecution, uh, atrocity, crimes, uh, and the aggression beyond uh, China's borders. Um, and I, I think both for um, the Western uh, reader who who wants to understand what's going on in China, seeing these different pieces uh, of the same picture together is helpful. But I also hope that um, it, it will encourage greater unity and collaboration, which we are starting to see um, between these different groups, between you know Uyghurs, Tibetans, Hong Kongers, Falun Gong, Ch- Chinese dissidents and Chinese Christians, um, and Taiwanese. Uh, and... Um, I mean, I, I've uh, often said that I, both among them and among uh, West, Western democracies as well, uh, I would really like to see us build a, a united front to uh, to, to uh, counter their united front. It, it sounds like what you're talking about is actually the CCP's worst nightmare. Yes. <laughs> well, communism always, every communist society tries to divide people, make them afraid or mistrustful or hate other people. Because they understand that once you know people actually get together, they'll realize that the real enemy is the Communist Party. I think we were we talking to Anna Kwok about this. Like we had Anna uh-huh. Kwok from we the were. Hong Kong Democracy Council on a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and she was mentioning some of the challenges of building kind of a this this movement in exile for Hong Kongers. And she said one of the things is that when they were protesting in Hong Kong, there was this sense of like absolute trust among all the protesters and the people supporting the protesters, but that since the protests have ended, the CCP has done their best to kind of sow distrust, uh, and overcoming that is quite a challenge. Yeah, that, uh, you know, they were largely anonymous to each other for security reasons, and, you know, then the party, you know, finds one person and gets them to reveal information, and then everyone's like, oh, who, who ratted me out? And it just destroyed the trust of a group that was incredibly close. Mm, mm, absolutely, and and that's what the CCP is is incredibly good at doing, and that's why you know we need to strengthen our efforts to to try to prevent that. But I can totally see that um, building trust is is uh, you know the, the the big challenge in this. We've talked about how there was this sort of uh, sense that like we could work with China; it'll help reform China. Uh, globalization that obviously well we're seeing that fall apart with China especially with zero COVID and their economy no longer functioning we're seeing that with Putin and the invasion of Ukraine Uh, you can't really work with dictators and authoritarian regimes so based on what you've seen in the book how can we uh, reshape uh, the global policy towards China Well, that, that's absolutely what what we should be doing um, is completely uh, uh, recalibrating re, uh, the the approach. Um, I've never been someone who says um, that we shouldn't engage uh, with China um, uh, because I, I'm I, I think with a country that size and and with that influence, um, you, you can't really not um, 
communicate. And even at the height of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, you know, we we had uh, points of contact uh, with them. For me, the question is not should we engage, but how to engage, on whose terms, with what objective, um, and and in what ways. And so, I think we should be uh, certainly um, reevaluating the economic relationship. You know if not decoupling, at least certainly uh, significantly diversifying our relation, our economic relationships um, uh, so that we're not uh, uh, dependent on China. We, we should stop having Chinese investment in uh, critical uh, industries and sectors. Um, and we should be looking at um, punitive uh, uh, measures uh, for uh, their crimes, because I think to allow them to get away with... Um, uh, the genocide of the Uyghurs, the crimes against humanity uh, that uh, the China Tribunal has has found with uh, forced organ harvesting, um, atrocities in Tibet, and the dismantling of Hong Kong's freedoms in complete breach of an international treaty. To allow all that to go with no consequences, with, with no penalties, will just mean the CCP is is emboldened uh, to to continue and and further increase its repression and its aggression abroad as, as well. So um, I set out in the book um, uh, ten ideas. I won't go through all, all ten, but they they relate to uh, the points I've just made. If there was one that you could magically be like, all right, like this will actually happen, what would you pick? I, I think it would be, um, and, and, and this probably would uh, require some, some degree of, of, of magic or, or miracle, but it would be getting um, all of the Western, uh, uh, and not just Western, actually, all, all of the free world, all, all, all of the world's major democracies, um, from the US and Canada, the UK, uh, the EU, Australia, but also countries in the region like Japan, Korea, uh, India, um, to uh, exert economic pressure together, so to impose targeted sanctions uh, together. That, I think, is is the approach that could have an effect. When, when countries act uh, on their own, it sends an important message, but obviously the CCP is able to uh, play countries off each other and, and, and create, you know, divisions um, and, and retaliate more easily. But if the free world acted as a bloc, uh, that, um, that, that could have some uh, effect and hit uh, the CCP, you know, where it hurts, which is in their pockets. Um, but you, you did ask uh, for something magical. And I think, I think that would be uh, uh, maybe wishful thinking, but something to aim for. Well, a little bit of that has happened. Like, didn't the UK and US sanction certain officials for the Uyghur genocide around the same time? That's correct. They they did. And it was definitely very welcome and a, and a very good start. Although they only really sanctioned a, a handful of officials. Um, and very strangely, uh, Chen Chuangguo, who was the party secretary at, at the time, who was the architect of um, uh, the... the uh, the, the Uyghur genocide, um, and had been the architect of the in intensification of repression in Tibet previously. Um, he was not on the sanctions list, at least for the UK. And um, and that's very strange. Hmm. But yeah, I see what you mean about how it would really take some kind of miracle at current, as it currently stands, for a lot of these uh, countries to work together because you you just had the German Chancellor go to China and you know, made some remarks about the Uyghurs, but also was like, oh, yeah, well, we need to do business with China. <laughs> We're not gonna stop doing business with China um, and things like that. So that's quite tough. That, that's right. And we're seeing here in the UK, um, you know, we had uh, our, our previous, our most recent <laughs> prime minister, <laughs> Liz Truss, who was prime minister for 44 days. Uh, I think she had given us a bit of hope that, um, that she gets this and and was was going to take a much tougher position, but sadly, you know, she didn't last uh, uh, long. And Rishi Sunak, the, the new prime minister, is sending out mixed messages. I mean, he is on the one hand, he has uh, he gave a speech a week or so ago where he um, declared the uh, so-called golden era of of a few years ago, golden era of Sino-British relations to be to be dead and to be in in the past and he's described china as uh, the biggest challenge uh, for the uk 
Um, and he said that the UK must you know, stand up for our values. And that's all very welcome. And you wouldn't have even had that a few years ago. But at the same time, he's also talked about uh, the, the importance of the business relationship. And he's, he's um, used a new expression, which we're all trying to either find out what it means or, or perhaps um, try to define for him in a way that um, is helpful to our cause. He's used the phrase robust pragmatism. And um, depending on what that means, uh, you know, that's either rather worrying um, or, you know, if we define it for him and, you know, I, I, I would like to see a robust foreign policy, but I don't mind it being pragmatic as well in the sense of uh, working. We, we, you know, we, we, we want it to, to be practical, um, but I suspect he has something else in mind by ro- robust pragmatism. Well, if China is able to have a secret slush, not even secret slush fund to the head of the UN... I wonder what else is happening around that the world. Is, that is, that is, you know, very pragmatic for it's the UN. Very, it's very robust, too. <laughs> I'm sure it's robust. Yes. Now, I know you mentioned uh, recent, briefly here uh, the China Tribunal. And uh, in the book, I didn't know this, but you, you had a pretty important role in that. Well, yes. Um, so, so I came into the issue of uh, organ harvesting in around 2016, um, when uh, the Conservative Party Human Rights Commission, which uh, I'm the deputy chair of, uh, was holding a um, an inquiry on human rights in China ac- across the board. And uh, Ethan Gutman, who's you know one of the uh, world's experts on the issue of of organ harvesting, wrote an excellent book called The Slaughter, uh, got in touch with me. I I didn't know him up to that point. And he summarized his findings. It it was around the time that he, David Kilgore and David Matus, were doing their update uh, report where they put their their research together. And I I listened to Ethan. We had him testify at our hearing. We then had Anastasia Lin uh, come and speak at the hearing. And I was I was initially, as I think a lot of people are, kind of open to hearing this, but also a little bit sceptical because, you know, it's such a shocking uh, atrocity. Uh, and of course, it's so hard to prove, unlike other human rights violations, the, you know, there are basically no survivors um, and the uh, people committing organ harvesting are the uh, the, the the doctors and nurses and surgeons uh, carrying it out uh, and the officials um, ordering it um, uh, and so so it's uh, you know the, the level of evidence is much harder to find but I, I uh, as I listened to them I I felt it was uh, they were sincere I didn't think they were people who would who would make this kind of thing up and so I, I became convinced and and started advocating on the issue but I felt there was a need for some kind of independent legal analysis. And uh, I happen to know Sir Geoffrey Nice uh, from work we'd done together on actually on North Korea and previously on on, on Burma. And so I asked uh, Sir Geoffrey Nice if he would consider looking at uh, all the reports and, and, and testimony and evidence uh, that did exist uh, and providing a, a, a legal opinion. And he said, why don't we do something bigger than that? Why, why don't we do a, an independent tribunal? And so I introduced him to um, the uh, coalition working on forced uh, organ harvesting, and um, that's how that's how the China Tribunal came about. And and actually, I had a small um, sort of catalyzing role uh, in the in the Uyghur Tribunal as well, because uh, uh, almost as soon as uh, the China Tribunal had concluded, um, there was a, a, a Uyghur delegation visiting London that I was helping to to host. And I introduced them to Sir Geoffrey Nice. And he'd, he'd also, the Uyghur situation had come up in the China Tribunal because of organ harvesting taking place uh, uh, among the Uyghurs. So he was already interested in the Uyghur uh, uh, situation. And I introduced him to some Uyghurs and that led to conversations um, that led to, led to the Uyghur Tribunal. So um, other people did the work on both tribunals, but, but I had a tiny part to play just in kind of um, getting the, the ball rolling. Why do you think those tribunals were important? I think they were very important um, in both cases, essentially because um, the panel in both tribunals uh, was made up of uh, really top uh, world-class experts in different fields, um, uh, the law, uh, academia, um, uh, human rights, uh, medical 
uh, medicine and medical ethics, um, uh, and even uh, business. Uh, uh, but none of them were um, people who had a previous agenda on China. So they weren't uh, made up of, you know, <laughs> people like you or me, who, who've been speaking about these issues for a long time, they were really coming to it uh, fresh, uh, and with a degree of, of genuine independence. So they couldn't be accused of being uh, long time uh, anti CCP critics. And um, plus, of, of course, the fact that Sir Jeffrey Nice had been the prosecutor of Slobodan Milosevic. So you know, he, he knows a thing or two about atrocity crimes. And I think that gave it a, a real credibility. Um, and also the way they, in both tribunals, um, really conducted the inquiries um, very rigorously. Uh, the hearings for both tribunals were all uh, public. Um, all the evidence, apart from perhaps some evidence that had to be uh, withheld for security reasons to protect the individuals involved, but Almost all the evidence uh, is on the websites of both tribunals, uh, not just the hearings, but all the uh, thousands of pages of of written evidence. Um, and then in in their judgments in both tribunals, um, they they really approached it uh, in, in a in a very um, I would say almost cautious uh, way. So, for example, when I sat uh, at um, almost exactly a year ago uh, t- today um, to hear the delivery of the judgment on on the Uyghur tribunal. Uh, I sat in the room with uh, with a few hundred other people as Sir Geoffrey Nice uh, went through the, the conclusions. Um, and he started uh, on various counts of genocide by saying not proven. And he went through the list of each time it was not proven. And I was initially thinking, my goodness, they're, they're going to be opening champagne in Beijing. And what have I done? You know, I've, this is really counterproductive. Until he uh, until he got to the final count, which was on uh, forced sterilization and, and forced abortion, where he said, you know, proven beyond reasonable doubt. Um, and it was on that count alone that they found uh, genocide. And I think that has uh, real strength because they can't be accused of of throwing the term genocide around loosely. They they showed this rigor, um, but but on one count alone, uh, genocide was proven. Yeah, I do think that for both the China Tribunal on Organ Harvesting and the Uyghur Tribunal, they lent another air, like a further air of legitimacy to these issues, like that of the the Uyghur genocide, which a lot of you know, there was a lot of debate about like, oh, well, does it really count as genocide? Yeah. Um, et cetera. And then the UN report coming out recently and being like, well, it was crimes against humanity, probably, um, but not mentioning genocide. And with organ harvesting, of course, with nobody really wanting to address that it was happening at all, you know, after the tribunal, suddenly you saw, um, and I remember this because we were in Hong Kong at the time, right? When yeah. the, When it came out that like, Suddenly, uh, you know, you would see news reports from mainstream media who were like, oh, there's this organ harvesting happening in China, according to this tribunal. Hmm. Well, uh, which was especially interesting because uh, with the China tribunal, they had people give testimony. And one of the people who gave testimony was Dee Dee Kirsten Tatlow, former New York Times reporter. Well, hmm. she submitted written testimony. Written testimony, yeah. And like one of the things she said is she was at an event at, at Beijing Hospital where state officials were giving, uh, talking about the organ donation system, and she overheard uh, two Chinese doctors talking about organ harvesting of prisoners of conscience. Oh, I mean, they talked to her about it, where one of them asked the other, that's not okay. Then, no, there's I, another part where she, like, overheard something. Yeah. Well, anyways, the point is, like, she was like, oh, this is a big story, and she asked her editors to for permission to start looking into it and she said that basically she was told that's not a story the new york times wants to cover yeah I, I, absolutely I, I i that's quite right i mean getting getting it out uh in mainstream media and and to politicians that would take it seriously was was a real challenge um i remember i think um i don't remember exactly when this was but uh, uh somewhere around 2018 i think um I, I um, proposed a uh, an opinion piece to the Wall Street Journal um, on uh, organ harvesting, and apparently it was the first time they had ever published an opinion piece on this issue. And previously, they'd always been uh, they'd always refused pieces. Um, so that was quite a breakthrough to get something uh, there. But I think the China tri- Tribunal really opened up uh, a lot of doors that previously 
were closed to us. Do you think that um, the increased focus on certain China human rights issues, um, where the CCP has been responsible for things like the crackdown on Hong Kong, the genocide of the Uyghurs, as more of these things come to light, does that help other human rights issues in China that have been more neglected, like the Tibet issue or that of the persecution of Christians? Um, I can see that it's had some effect on Taiwan, definitely, like the way that people talk about Taiwan um, Hong Kong has definitely affected that. But I was wondering, since you've brought all this stuff up in your book together, whether you see uh, some of the more prominent things helping uh, like these other issues come to light, or if it's more kind of like, well, now people have lost, like, you know, we can only have room for one or two China human rights issues at a time. I, I think it could go uh, either way. Um, I think it is helpful in, in getting people to pay attention to China. Um, and maybe some people, you know, see the uh, the genocide of the Uyghurs or the situation in Hong Kong, and and then uh, go a bit deeper and find all these other issues. But there is at the same time, a, a, I think, a danger that um, Tibet, especially, you know, which used to get a lot of attention, um, uh, has fallen down the the agenda. Um, and that's, I think, partly because people are. Uh, focusing on some of these other issues. It's also because um, in the case of Tibet, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is not traveling internationally uh, uh, as much as he used to. Um, uh, and that's partly because of COVID, partly because of his age. Um, the uh, um, Hollywood sort of champions of Tibet uh, have largely been marginalized. And, and because of the CCP's influence in Hollywood, it's now um, pretty hard to find uh, uh, Hollywood stars that would uh, take up that cause. Um, the persecution of Christians certainly isn't getting the attention that I think it needs. So it could go either way. But I and one of the reasons I wrote the book, and, and I was very, uh, I was particularly interested in researching the uh, chapter on Tibet because I, I was concerned that it's um, not getting the attention it needs. So I. Um, my message certainly to people is that um, the Uyghurs need all the attention uh, they can get. Hong Kong needs all the attention it can get. Um, but we should also be paying attention to all these other issues. Um, and and we should see the, the picture as a whole, which is that uh, the CCP is, uh, is repressive and, and persecutes um, anyone that uh, either um, uh, dissents from it or that it just regards uh, as having... Uh, an ethnic identity or a religious uh, cultural identity that that it dislikes. Well, I wonder if we could talk about uh, some of the protests that have happened, which happened after the book came out. But I would be curious to hear some of your thoughts about it, especially, you know, I think over the years, there's always been this this big question about what do you what does your average Chinese person think and feel about the Chinese Communist Party? Because it's, you know, a totalitarian repressive state with Orwellian surveillance you can't do a public opinion survey and get good answers. How do... <laughs> I mean, I think the answer is that 99% of people really love the uh, ruling party. That's sure. what those opinion polls say. That's, that's sure true. Um, but with these protests, we've seen how widespread uh, dissent was. And also, in particular, uh, people were focusing on the Chinese Communist Party itself, which I think was, was a in really big... In certain places. In certain places, that wasn't yeah. widespread. But then you also saw abroad a lot of chinese uh, a lot of the chinese diaspora also picking up uh, the protest slogans and in particular a lot of like young chinese university students abroad who i think a lot of people just kind of dismissed as being you know bought and paid for by the communist party that you know they were able to study abroad because their families were rich enough to send them abroad and they got rich through the chinese communist party essentially uh so what, what do you think about this? Like, there, this seems to be uh, kind of proof of just much larger dissent than maybe a lot of people were expecting. I, th I think that's absolutely right. And of course, there were some some early signs of this even before the uh, the, the large protests that we've just seen. Um, you'll remember that uh, as the CCP's 20th Party con Congress uh, began, there were there was that form of protest um, in terms of banners being uh, put up on, on the bridge uh, in, in Beijing. And at the same time, um, there was actually a protest in London in Trafalgar Square by uh, Chinese student students, which is 
probably the first time or one of the very few times that I've been aware of Chinese students in in London uh, protesting. And then obviously it became much bigger, um, initially sparked by the the impact of the incredibly draconian uh, COVID uh, restrictions and the fire um, uh, in Urumqi. But what was interesting about the protests, as you've said, is that uh, they were not um, protests saying lift COVID restrictions. They they were protests saying Xi Jinping step down, CCP step down. We want freedom and democracy. And uh, one Chinese dissident has described it to me uh, as the uh, the blank paper revolution. Um, you know, we had the color revolutions before. This was the blank paper revolution where people held up uh, pieces of blank paper um, to signify, you know, a clear message that um, they're not free to to say what they want to say, but 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 implicitly, it's clear that they don't like uh, the repression and the surveillance um, uh, uh, under Xi Jinping's uh, regime. And I think I would say that Xi Jinping has has really broken the what people described as the sort of unspoken pact between the party and and the people uh, that's existed um, over the last few decades, where. The, the sort of unspoken deal was that the party would uh, preside over um, economic growth that would you know, really improve people's uh, living standards. Uh, and as we said earlier in, in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, allow some uh, space uh, for, for, for some freedom of expression, albeit within red lines. Um, under Xi Jinping, we've seen uh, all of that freedom com- not freedom, but all of all of that little space uh, completely disappear, uh, and at the same time, uh, he he seems to be hostile to private enterprise, to to the entrepreneurial spirit that existed under his predecessors, um, and the zero COVID uh, policy, and all the surveillance, um, and and he's sort of you know what's he offering uh, the people in return for um, for for respect for the for the party's authority? So I I think. Um, we're seeing much greater discontent. Where, where it will lead, um, time will tell. But I, I've certainly been very inspired by what we've seen in the last few weeks. I was kind of thinking about the beginning chapters of your book where you talk about going to Qingdao in the 1990s, the early 90s, and teaching English, and how you mentioned that there will, there seemed to be some space for people to joke about socialism or joke about the party a little bit. Um, have you kept in touch with anybody from that time? And do you know if their if their thoughts on on how the CCP is going, how China is going, have changed? Um, so I kept in touch with quite a lot of my friends from Qingdao for um, probably at least a decade or or or, or more. Um, unfortunately, over the last few years, uh, I've lost contact with pretty much all of them. Um, I mean, that was partly because. Uh, people had moved on and, and and we just lost contact. But it was also um, since I started being very public in my uh, advocacy on on China, I deliberately stopped uh, contacting those that I that I had been uh, uh, had kept in touch with um, bec- for their sakes, because obviously um, the more uh, public I became, um, the, the more dangerous it would be for them. So uh, so sadly, I'm not in contact now with anyone that I knew then. Yeah, I, I mean, that's such a shame because I feel like that part of your book kind of hints at what China could have become, um, even though also 1992 was only three years after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, but it does like hint at like if the CCP had taken a different route and had somehow not been the CCP <laughs> and uh, not been so repressive in so many ways that... Um, that spirit of the Chinese people, like that curiosity about the outside world, that entrepreneurial spirit, it clearly could have um, taken China in a different direction. Well, it's interesting because that was the whole idea of like getting China into WTO, that like if we give them money and access, that will help those reformers. That uh, will help they it were grow. thinking that there were reformers within the CCP. Yeah, that and that's happening. the thing. So we actually just ended up strengthening the Chinese Communist Party to the point where any hope that uh, we actually did the opposite thing. If, if the West probably had done nothing, it would have been more likely to bring reform to China. I, I think with hindsight, that's, um, that's very true, um, although it was probably harder to see it at, at the time.
Mm, yeah, I remember, I remember like in your chapter on Hong Kong, you even talked about how it seemed that the way the CCP was talking about one country, two systems, like under Jiang Zemin at the time, was already different than how people in Hong Kong were thinking of one party, two systems. Mm. Oh, one country, two systems. Not one party, two systems, but <laughs> essentially, that's yeah, what it is. Yeah, really. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, I, I describe in the book, or, or, although I, I conclude the chapter, the first chapter on Hong Kong, looking at um, my five years there from 1997 to 2002, I conclude by saying that I, when I left Hong Kong, I was um, cautiously optimistic that uh, one country, two systems was working and, 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 and would uh, endure. Uh, at the same time, I, I do describe some early warning signs, kind of subtle early warning signs of um, of encroachment on Hong Kong's promised uh, freedoms, um, but I never anticipated that it would um, end up in the situation it's in today. It was very fast. Well, it was very slow and, and then, then very fast. Yes. yes, yes, exactly. So I guess moving forward, uh, what do you think is next for you now that you've got this book out there? Because you, you seem to get your hands in all, all of the, the China pies. <laughs> yes. That's a good analogy. <laughs> um, I certainly didn't set out to, uh, to, to, to do that, but it, it has um, ended up that way. Um, uh, in terms of, of what's next, it's very funny. Uh, um, you know, at several of the launches for the book, uh, people have said to me, um, so what's your next book? And I sort of said, well, you know, I'm, I've just got this one out. I, I'll, I'll maybe take a step back for a bit um, before I think of doing any any other book. But in terms of um, what's next more generally, uh, I mean, the work of Hong Kong Watch continues. Actually, uh, we're, we're just uh, about to mark our uh, fifth anniversary. Um, and we, you know, I think our work is needed now more than ever, particularly with some of the upcoming trials in Hong Kong, the, the trial of Jimmy Lai, the trial of the 47 uh, former legislators and, and activists. So a lot of work to be done there. Um, I, I'll continue to be involved in all the other issues. And and I'm, I think I don't have specific plans for this, but I'd be now that um, the COVID restrictions in Taiwan have lifted, um, I, I would be really keen to go back to Taiwan at some point And um, and sort of strengthen my my involvement in supporting Taiwan because I think that's the obviously the next uh, you know now that they've dismantled Hong Kong it's clear that um, their sights are set on Taiwan uh, no one knows what the time frame for that will be but I think we we all should be um, strengthening our solidarity with Taiwan. Yes, we'll have to see who wins the Taiwanese presidential elections in twenty twenty four. It's gonna be a big thing. Um, I was wondering actually because. Uh, you had mentioned this briefly in the book, what you think of how, uh, you know, Western countries and other liberal democracies around the world, how they've shifted on China. And if you could tell us a little bit about um, what led to that and where you see that going. Yes. I mean, I think although there's still a lot more I would like to see uh, uh, Western countries do, um, definitely the rhetoric and, and the mood has shifted very significantly um, you know, back in 2016, when the Conservative Party Human Rights Commission did its uh, first inquiry, uh, we were uh, really regarded uh, as a, a sort of fringe, marginal uh, nuisance. Um, uh, there were only two uh, Conservative MPs who would put their names to our report, although others privately said they agreed with us. Um, uh, and and now, you know, what I say, I think, is... Uh, uh, is is pretty mainstream and and uh, in the British Parliament um, and in other countries uh, there are there are many more voices so that's very welcome uh, and and the shift from um, uh, the British government uh, we're seeing it uh, to some extent uh, in in Canada in Australia of course um, and of course in the US it's pro probably the one issue that uh, uh, brings Democrats and Republicans together you know at a time when politics is so polarized and divided, it's, there does appear to be a real bipartisan consensus uh, there, at least in diagnosing the problem. There may be differences over uh, policy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, th I think the situation has has really moved, and but we, we need to, um, uh, we can't rest on our laurels. We, you know, we need to be alert to any backsliding in, in this, and we need to be pushing our governments to uh, really follow through on the rhetoric with um, 
con- concrete policies, which uh, you know, which I set out in the fi- final chapter of the book. You know, I don't think we ever told you this, but pretty recently we did an episode about uh, the UK's China policy, and uh, YouTube age restricted that, which basically means like people won't be able to really watch the show. It, it kills the view of the episode, and I was just—it was so strange because it's. Oh, I know why they age-restricted that one. Well, we can guess because they don't actually tell us. They don't tell us, but my guess for that one is that uh, we showed a still image because this is actually before the conservative leadership election, so we were talking about Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak and their differing views on China and where that could go. And uh, the we showed a still image of Hong Kong police arresting protesters in 2019. And... That, I think, was the thing that got this episode aid restricted. Mm-hmm. Well, but because still, otherwise that's... the whole thing was just about British politics. So I don't unless right. they think that that's inappropriate for people under 18. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine that that was why. But it is uh, we've been having a lot of trouble with YouTube age restricting things for like any time we show Chinese police. Uh, Uyghurs. Uh, we've when we've showed um, that fairly famous footage of the blindfolded Uyghurs mm. uh, that was leaked a number of years ago, uh, the blindfolded Uyghur prisoners. Um, when we've shown any kind of like um, like harsh COVID uh, methods, like people being like arrested in the street or something like that, like that can all get us age restricted. Wow. Um, yeah, and oh. people who don't sign into YouTube can't see the video. Mm. Uh, so it's not just people who are under 18. It is anybody who doesn't have a YouTube account can't look at it. Mm. And then YouTube will not Recommend show the video it. to anybody, essentially. Uh, so it is. Which makes me think of, uh, you know, what the China Tribunal found out about the New York Times. Like, there's just, we have so many problems with media and big tech just not wanting to help sk- spread the word about what's happening in China, mm. which is why it's so nice that there is a book that sort of is a good summary of all of these issues in one place. Oh, yes, if people read. If people read. <laughs> I, I do think that it's interesting, Benedict, that you said that even in 2017, uh, your commission, Human Rights Commission, seemed like a, like a pretty fringe. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, it... Uh, it was a very different time then. It was, um, uh, you know, the David Cameron's government, the what they called the, the golden era of, of Sino-British relations. And um, a lot has changed since then. And I, I think I didn't answer part of your earlier question, which was sort of how has this change come about? And I, th- I think there are, there have been in the last, um, I guess, nearly three years now, uh, a succession of um, different issues that coming very close together or one after the other that I think have really woken people up. I, I think we there was a big debate over uh, allowing uh, Huawei uh, to be part of our 5G uh, network in the UK um, at the start of the end of 2019, early 2020. Um, that was probably the first big, big debate that that woke some people up. Um, and then, you know, soon after that, we had the pa- pandemic um, and questions about uh, where did COVID come from and, and how was it caused? Um, and and the CCP's determination to uh, to cover that up and, and not to allow an independent uh, investigation, um, and then all the uh, the crackdown and dismantling of Hong Kong's uh, freedoms, um, very much in our news and very visible to to people, uh, and then the evidence of the Uyghur genocide, um, uh, which obviously those of us that were following it were aware of uh, for for some years before that, but I think. Over the last two years, it's uh, it's become much better known. It's received much more media attention. Um, so I think all these issues, and and then of course the CCP has has helped with with its um, wolf warrior diplomacy. And it's uh, uh, you know there was the incident at the Manchester consulate uh, uh, six weeks or so ago. Uh, so the behaviour of Chinese officials being much much more aggressive, I think, has also not won them any friends. So all, all these factors have contributed to. Uh, people rethinking. I do remember the Trump administration's, the State Department, 
on the way out, basically declaring the what was happening to the Uyghurs a genocide. And I was actually surprised uh, because even though um, the State Department under Mike Pompeo had done a lot uh, more and even the Commerce Department had been more aggressive on the CCP, I didn't think that the I would see a U.S. government actually come out and call it genocide. Yeah, I, I agree. It was um, it was a really... Uh... A significant moment, um, which I also de- describe in the book, and I interviewed some of the people, uh, Mary Kissel, who was uh, Mike Pompeo's uh, uh, senior advisor, um, Sam Brownback, who was the ambassador for international religious freedom, uh, and Kelly Curry, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and, you know, they described to me, uh, you know, ha- how that battle was won from within the State Department, where there was you know, certainly some uh, built-in resistance. Um, but the other thing that was significant about it, of course, was that um, I, I think a matter of hours after Mike Pompeo had declared uh, uh, this de- designation, um, Anthony Blinken, his successor, I think at his confirmation hearing in the Senate that same day, uh, confirmed that he, he agreed uh, with it. And so it's one of the few decisions that the previous administration and the current administration uh, agree on. That almost seems like a miracle in itself. Yes. <laughs> Miracles do happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, definitely we're seeing, I, th- I think we're seeing more and more people getting very clear on China, except for all the people who are being bought off. Well, what was the, there was a headline from, was it the Wall Street Journal this week or something, where they were talking about how it was something like, damn the torpedoes, Wall Street. Uh, executives want to go full speed ahead on China. Oh, so yeah. people are already talking about, oh, well, I mean, they're lifting the pandemic restrictions. Now's the time to invest again. Hmm. So I think it's, it's. I don't think the, uh, the, the battle is won, really. No, no. Oh. The sides are just, the lines are being drawn. Hmm. Uh, absolutely. Uh, no, I think um, you're absolutely right. And, and we see that here in, in the UK as well. Uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I th- I'm concerned about um, where Rishi Sunak is going to go uh, on this. Um, and you know, one of the issues that Hong Kong Watch has highlighted in in the last year in three different reports is the uh, number of of pension funds across the the world in the UK, the US, Canada, across Europe uh, th- that are invested in uh, Chinese companies that are directly facilitating. Uh, the atrocities against uh, the, the Uyghurs and and others in the surveillance state. So yeah, there's a there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, that means more books for you to write <laughs> and more interviews for us to do. Yes, <laughs> I think Benedict has the harder of the two things. <laughs> he has to write an entire book. We just talk to him for an hour. This is why they let us into Hong Kong. This is why we don't matter. <laughs> because we're not writing books. We're not writing books. I'll write a book. <laughs> How hard can it be? How hard How was hard it? it? How yeah. hard was it? <laughs> well, it, it was it was hard just in terms of um, the amount of time it, it required. Definitely, I mean, it was it was you know most weekends and lots of late nights and um, and I wanted to do it um, even though I was familiar with. Um, you know the subject matter. I wanted to really bring not just my own voice, but but other voices to it, and which is why I did uh, over eighty interviews. Um, the job was made a bit easier. Uh, I mean, if I'd had to do the eighty interviews and um, dis- uh, transcribe them or or go through my notes from them, uh, most of them I recorded. Um, uh, if I'd had to do that myself, that would have been very hard. I, w- I was fortunate to have. Uh, three um, uh, students who who helped me with transcribing the interviews, so that made it a bit easier. But yeah, it was um, it was a lot of work, um, but I'm really glad I've I've done it, and it was I think very worthwhile. Definitely. Well, Benedict, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I know we'll probably have you on again at some point. <laughs> yeah, and we really enjoyed the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's always great to have Benedict on the show. I think I'll write a book. Yeah? You're going to give up all your evenings and weekends? Well, I just won't interview anyone else or get anyone else's (laughs) thoughts. I'll just... How hard can that be? No fact-checking. No. No citing anything. Just, like, write from the id. 
That's right. Uh-huh. You know, th- there's there's a whole spiritual dimension to reality. You can't be focused on like this materialistic fact checking everything. Some things are metaphor. And so this is going to be like portrait of the artist as a young man, the China uncensored version. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> But yes. Stream of consciousness writing? Sure. All about China. You'd, you'd, you'd buy that, right? I think it'll make a splash. I think it would be good enough that it would get us banned from going to Hong Kong. Uh, you don't have to do anything anymore to get yourself banned That's from. That's true. I think you, everything we did retroactively is now enough to get us yeah. banned from Hong Kong. So if that is your life goal, I think you've already achieved it. Hey, wow. I've, I'm, I'm suddenly fully actualized. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being here for that. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly John. We'll talk to you next time. 